Well, hey, we're kicking off a brand new series today called Get Rich. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through 1 Timothy chapter 6. So I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles if you have a a YouVersion app ready to go. And go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 with me. And as you're finding your way there, I'm going to ask you a real simple question, all right? No need to raise your hands. You can just answer this for yourself. But, But here's the question. How many of us in the room would consider ourselves rich. See, I have this hunch, and I've been looking for people shaking their heads all day long. I have this hunch that the majority of us in the room would answer that question with a big, emphatic no. James, I'm, I'm not rich, and here's why. Because when we hear that word rich, don't our minds oftentimes go to the world's definition of rich? Like we think of seven-figure paychecks, houses that could be on an episode of MTV Cribs. We think expensive cars, designer clothes, exotic vacations. And because most of us probably don't have a lot of those things, we would never lump ourselves into the rich category. Now, let me answer, or let me ask you a second question. And you can answer this one if you'd like by, by raising your hands. How many of us in the room wish we could be rich or at least a little richer than we are right now? Okay, we got some honest people in the room. Here's good news. Here's good news. Listen, we can be. We can be. And that's what this series is about. Over the next four weeks, we're going to learn how to get rich. But there's a catch, and I'm going to try to let you down as softly as I can, okay? Listen, according to the Bible, getting rich has nothing to do with seven-figure paychecks, big houses, expensive cars, designer clothes, exotic vacations. As we're going to learn, getting rich... It's not about what you have and how much you make. Instead, it's about who you have and how you use what you make. And so with that in mind, man, I'm going to go to the scriptures. I'm going to invite you to go there with me. We're going to read just one verse to get started, 1 Timothy 6, 6. And I'm going to need your help in a moment, all right? I'm going to get you to repeat a word with me, so be ready. Here it is. But godliness with, what's the word? All right, say it again. All right, like you mean it this time. All right, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The first step in getting rich is learning to be content. That word that you and I just said out loud, contentment, that appears in verse 6. It literally means an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. So contentment, right, don't miss this, according to the Bible, it's something that happens on the inside of us in spite of what's going on outside of us. In other words, contentment happens from the inside out, not the outside in. Now that's completely countercultural, isn't it? Because doesn't our world often tell us that if you want to be content, you're going to need more money, more stuff, more external things. And oftentimes we buy it. Like, that's why we'll go stand in line for an iPhone for like eight hours. And that's why we'll go down to the dealership, we'll get the new car, we'll call up the agent, we'll we'll buy that nicer, bigger house that we've been wanting. We we take those steps expecting the whole time by, by getting more money and getting more stuff, we will be content. And here's what's crazy. We are at first. And then like six weeks passes and the contentment starts wearing off, right? Apple tells us that they're releasing a new iPhone, newer than the one we just bought. And we're like, dang, if, if I'd have just been patient and waited six more weeks, I could have the latest and greatest. But now I'm stuck with the one that's, that's old again. Um, we've never seen the car that we just bought in our lives until we bought it. And now it seems like everybody on the road is driving it, right? 
we just bought our house and, and a friend just bought our house too and they used a different agent and what's crazy is their house is in a better neighborhood than ours and it's nicer and bigger and they paid less money. I mean, it's insane. We've all experienced situations like that, haven't we? And those situations prove the point that contentment, listen, contentment happens from the inside out, not the outside in. And here's why. Look at verse 7. Here's why. Paul goes on, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul's reminding us of what the Bible teaches time and time again about money and stuff, that it is temporary. We didn't bring it with us and we're not going to take it with us, right? And here's the key thought. Temporary things cannot offer lasting contentment because temporary things, by definition, don't last which is why if you're here tonight as a person who puts your hope in, in money and stuff, you expect money and stuff to give you greater contentment in life, it's why you walk in the room tonight discontent. And so, listen, here's the question we need to answer. Uh, we need to answer this question of if the Bible is, is true, if what, what we're, we're saying is right, then how in the world can you and I learn to be content? If contentment happens from, from the inside out, not the outside in, then, then what's the key to contentment? Well, I'm going to give you four principles tonight based on our passage to answer that question. And here's my guarantee. I guarantee you that if you'll take these principles and apply them to your life, you will learn to be content. Here's principle number one. First, you have to live with a loan, not own mentality. If you've been around Crosspoint for any amount of time, you've heard me say what I'm about to say. All right, here it is. God owns everything, and you don't own anything. You get that, right? Like, I'll give you biblical proof of it. Look at this with me. The Bible tells us that all of creation, including your life and mine, belongs to God. All wealth belongs to God. Natural resources belong to God. Your ability to earn wealth belongs to God. And finally, every good gift that you enjoy in life belongs to God. The Bible tells us your money's not really your money. And your stuff isn't really your stuff, right? That's what Paul is telling us again in, in verse 7. Let's have a pop quiz on verse 7. You ready for this? All right, listen. What did you bring into the world? All right, what are you taking out of the world when you leave? So what do you own? You guys are smart people. You, you're getting this. You don't own anything. God owns everything. And what God has done for us as owner is simple. He has loaned us a portion of his money and his stuff while we're here on the earth for a purpose. And that purpose is what the Bible refers to as stewardship. And the idea of stewardship is simple, that there's an owner, that's God. He's got money, he's got stuff, and he gives it to us stewards, which are also called managers, and that our job is simple. We find out how God, the owner, wants his stuff to be managed, and we manage his money and stuff according to his wishes. And do you know what God's wishes are for his money and his stuff? His wishes are actually really simple. I'll show you his wishes. Here it is. When it comes to his money and stuff, he says, give, save, live off the rest. That seems pretty easy, doesn't it? But, but let's make sense of it because I, I want you to see how easy it really is. First, give. So God is owner. His first instruction to us as managers is, I want you to take a portion of the money that I've loaned to you and I want you to give it back to me. I want you to invest it in my work, in, in my church, in what I'm doing in the world. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on, on giving tonight because we're going to talk about it at length later in the series. But there is one thing I want you to know about giving, and here it is. When you give a portion of your income back to God, 
you are saying two significant things to him. One, God, I love you. Two, God, I trust you. You see, in John 14, 15, Jesus says that the way we express our love for God is by following his commands. And one of God's commands as owner of money and stuff is, hey, when you're managing my money and stuff, give some of it back to me. Jesus also tells us in Matthew 6 that if we'll follow God's commands and we'll invest money back into God's kingdom while we're here on the earth, here's what's awesome. You and I, we don't have to worry about our needs being met. But if we'll seek God's kingdom and invest financially in his work, that God will provide our needs. And so here's my question. Does your financial giving say to God, God, I love you. God, I trust you. And if not, what needs to change concerning your financial giving so that those things can be true of you? Then next, God, God says save. Do you know that the Bible actually talks about saving money and building wealth? I love Proverbs 20, 21. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. You know what that verse means? It's real simple. Wise people save, foolish people don't save. That's what it means. It's that easy. That's why here at Crosspoint, we have a savings account. We actually call it our reserves slash future planning account. And we take a portion of what we all give together each week and we put it aside for two purposes. One, so that we can prepare ourselves for the future that that we believe God has for us, the bright and great future. But, But secondly, so that we can be ready for unforeseen ministry opportunities that God might bring our way. Opportunities like the one we had last week to provide and meet the needs of 941 refugee families in the Middle East. And look, I would say to you that you should save personally for those same purposes. Set aside some money each month so that you can be ready for whatever God asks you to do. There's nothing worse than having to say no to God because you haven't put anything aside. And if you go, well, James, how much should I save? I think a good goal to set for yourself would be at least 10%. Try to save at least 10% of your income and then go from there. And then the last uh, desire of God is, well, you live off the rest. So after you save, after you give... You live off the rest. That's when you pay your bills. That's when you buy groceries. Uh, That's when you you plan date nights. That's when you buy clothes for your kids who just won't stop growing, right? You get the point. You give, you save, you live off the rest. Now, I want to be honest. If you're going to manage God's money and stuff according to his wishes, it's going to require some things of you. One, it's going to require that you spend less than you make. That's a novel idea, isn't it? But but it's going to require that of you. It's also going to require you to stop buying things you can't afford. I love how Dave Ramsey says it. He says that you and I, we should act our wage. That's some great advice. And then lastly, it's going to force us, require us to trust God as our ultimate provider. But can I tell you the result of of doing things God's way? You ready? Contentment. Contentment. When you as a manager... Steward God's stuff according to his wishes. God does something inside of you. He gives you a peace, an inward joy, a satisfaction that is no longer dependent on more money and more stuff. And look, if if you don't believe me, here'd be my advice. Just try that. Like, I dare you to try it. I am so confident that you're going to experience what I'm telling you you're going to experience, that I dare you to try God's way. I I promise you'll learn contentment. The second principle is this. You have to pursue godliness to gain more of God, not more of God's stuff. 
In verses 3 through 5 of 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes about false teachers. And he says that one of the defining characteristics of false teachers is that they teach godliness as a means of gain. So here's what that would sound like, right? It sounds like a guy saying to you, uh, come to church, give money, serve people, follow the commands of God. And the more godly things you do, the more of God's financial blessing you are going to earn for yourself. Listen, I want you to know that message, it's still alive in our church today, in our world today, in the church world. We call it the prosperity gospel. And if you want to know how we feel about that here at Crosspoint, I'll tell you. We hate it. We detest it. We, we loathe it. If you listen to pastors who teach that stuff, delete their sermons, quit listening to the podcast, uh, burn all the books, like shut it down, right? That's false teaching. It contradicts the true message of Jesus Christ. It, it teaches people not to love God and use money, but to love money and use God. And it ultimately says to God, God, what I need for contentment is not more of you, but more of your stuff. You see, that message turns contentment on its head. And it causes people to believe again that contentment happens from the outside in, not the inside out. And I'll tell you on a real practical level why that message is so dangerous. Because inevitably, all of us in the room are going to hit rough moments in life where things go bad. You're going to lose a job. Car's going to break down. Somebody's going to get sick. And and medical bills are going to skyrocket. And if you're that person who's bought into this idea that, that godliness is about gaining more of God's stuff, in that moment, you're going to be left with your, your hands up going, God, what gives? God, I thought I was doing all the right things, right? I mean, I've been coming to church. I've been, I've been giving money. I'm serving in kids' ministry. Don't even like kids. I mean, I went on the mission trip. I was scared. It was a big step for me. God, I, I thought by, by pursuing godly things that I was going to get more of your stuff, but I don't have more of your stuff. God, I, I kind of have all the same stuff I've always had. I, I thought by pursuing godliness, life was going to get easier, but, but it's gotten harder. And you know what's going to happen? Discontent is going to set in. And that discontent leaves you in danger of bailing on your relationship with God altogether. I've seen it happen time and time again, which is why it's so important for you and I to grab hold of this message that Paul is preaching in verse 6. Again, what does he say? He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, you and I have to understand the motivation for godliness is not to gain more of God's stuff. It's to gain more of who? God. You see, we've got to be those people who, who say, I'm going to come to church just because I want more of Him. I'm going to serve people because I, I want more of Him. I'm going to give money because I want more of Him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible because I want more of Him. You see, when you pursue godliness with no other motivation than to gain more of God, guess what happens? You get more of Him. You grow in intimacy with Him. You grow in knowledge of Him. You start to become more and more like Him. And the more you gain of God, the more content you become. Look, look, even in those moments when life goes bad. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. Check it out. He says, true contentment comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. Church, look, pursue godliness to gain more of God, not more of God's stuff. And you'll learn to be content. Let me give you principle three. Here it is. You got to stop playing the comparison game. You got to stop playing the comparison game. Some of you shaking your heads, you know where I'm going with this, right? Let's read our passage as a whole, verses six through eight, and then we'll unpack this statement together. Check this out. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now look at verse 8. This is hard. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Let me ask you this question. You think that could be true in your life? Like if all you had was Jesus, food, and clothes, could you really be content? It's a hard question, isn't it? It was a hard question for me this past week as I was writing this message. And I've been to places in the world where that's all people have. They got Jesus. They got the food they're eating. They got the clothes on their back. And as I'm thinking about verse 8, I was thinking about people I've met in some of the poorest countries in the world. And I was asking myself this past week, could I be content if, if I was in their situation? And listen, I often tell people that God's got to preach my messages to me before I preach them to you. Here's a great example of God doing that. As I'm struggling through that question, God, like, man, totally convicts me. I have a come to Jesus moment in my office. God's like, bro, you got to wake up. I need you to preach this Sunday. So you got you to gotta get this. You see, I realize as I'm sitting there comparing my situation to theirs, that I'm doing the very thing I'm telling you is so dangerous. I am turning contentment back into something that happens from the outside in, not the inside out. And see, that's why comparison is so dangerous. It is an enemy of contentment. But, but listen, let's be honest. Most of the time, when we're comparing our money and stuff to other people's money and stuff, we're not comparing ourselves to people who have less than us, are we? Most of the time, we're comparing ourselves to people who have more than us. Right? We're looking at our neighbor down the street, and we're saying to God, God, uh, I know I have food and clothes, but God, they got food, clothes, and a boat. I mean, man, the house, it's bigger than mine. Cars newer than mine. TVs bigger than mine. God, they got a pool in their backyard. I mean, gosh, I wish I, I had it like they have it. You know what that's called when you do that, right? It's called coveting. Coveting is when you want what somebody else has. Do you know that coveting appears in the Ten Commandments? That it actually made God's top ten list of things that you and I should either practice or avoid. Commandment number ten, God says to us, don't covet. Don't want what other people have. And do you know why? Because coveting kills contentment. It says to God, God, you failed me. God, I don't have what I truly need to be content because you've given it all to my neighbor. And God, if I only had what they had, I could be content. I don't need more of you, God, to be content. What I need is is more of what my neighbor has. You see, it turns contentment on its head again. It makes it into something that that we believe happens from the outside and not the inside out. Comparison leads to coveting. Coveting kills contentment, which is why you and I have to stop playing the comparison game. And I want to give you a truth tonight that I believe will absolutely change your life if you will believe it and apply it. Let let me show you this truth. And I wrote it in first person for a reason, by the way. Look at this. Some of you need to write this down. God has given me everything I need to do for him what he wants me to do. God has given me everything I need to do for him what he wants me to do. Look, some of you, again, you need to write that on a note card. You need to put it on the bathroom mirror, in your car, on your desk at work. And every time you find yourself playing the comparison game, you need to get this out. You need to read it. And you need to ask for God's help in believing it. That God has given me everything I need to do for him what he wants me to do. Look, he hasn't given you more. And he hasn't given you less. And the question you need to ask God is not, God, can I have more of my neighbor's stuff? But God, God, God. With what you've given me, what is it that you want me to do for you? And I promise, look, if you will stop playing the comparison game, 
And if you will believe this truth, you will learn contentment. And let me give you the last principle, principle four. You have to practice gratitude for God's provision. Practice gratitude for God's provision. Do you ever find yourself complaining to God about not having certain things you want? You ever do that? God, everybody else has the new iPhone but me. Don't have the money for it. I mean, if I could get that promotion at work, I might be able to buy more stuff like that, but I'm probably not going to get it. They're probably going to pass me over again. It happens every time. God, I wish I could get a new car, right? My car is old. It smells weird. I don't have any air conditioning. The headliner touches my head when I drive, and, and every time I turn left, it makes some weird noise. God, I wish I could have more money, buy more new clothes like all my friends. I mean, my clothes are so out of date. I think they're getting ready to come back in style. God, why can't I just have more? You ever do that? It's easy to complain to God about wanting those things that we don't have, isn't it? But let me ask you this question. How often do you stop and thank God that you have what you need? How often do you just stop and go, God, I, I know it's a flip phone, but God, thanks that I even have a phone. <laughs> God, I know my car is old and busted, but God, thank you that I at least have a way to get from point A to point B. God, I know my house isn't as big and as nice as other people's houses, but God, thanks that I have a house to live in. Thanks that I have food to eat. God, thank you for my out-of-date clothes. I am trusting you. They're coming back in style soon. God, just, just thank you for meeting my needs. How often do you do that? You see, here's why that question is so important, and here's why you need to practice this, because contentment is impossible without gratitude. It's impossible. You see, if you and I really want to be those people that Paul describes in verse 8, who can honestly say, if I have Jesus, food, and clothes, I can be content, you have to be thankful for even God's smallest provision in your life. You see, I'll show you the link between gratitude and contentment. Paul actually writes about it in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Check this out. He says, don't be anxious about anything. What you worried about? Paul says, stop worrying about it. That's what he says. Quit, quit worrying about what you have, what you don't have. Quit worrying about whatever your circumstance looks like. But instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? What's the word? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul's going, listen, quit freaking out and quit coming to God asking for all the stuff that you think is going to fix all your problems. But instead, come to God and thank him for who he is. Thank him for what you already have. Thank him for what he's done in your life. And after you've thanked him, well, then you can ask for stuff. And I want to show you in verse 7 the result of doing this. Paul goes on and he says, And if you do it that way, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that's a picture of? Contentment. That's God doing something inside a person. It's God giving a person joy, peace, satisfaction, that inner sufficiency that is not dependent on external things. This is church. Gratitude is powerful. It refocuses our hearts and our minds. It calls our attention away from what we don't have to what we do have. And look at me. When you're focused on and thankful for what you do have, you start remembering who you have. And that's the key in contentment. Contentment, again, it doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. So I would encourage you every day, every day, ready? To spend time thanking God for the needs in your life that he's provided for. And don't just thank him like that. Don't just go, oh, thank, thanks God for meeting my needs. Like name the needs that God has met in your life and thank him for meeting those needs by name. And if you'll do that, 
you'll learn to be content. Now, as we close, we're going to answer one final question, and it's this. Why is learning contentment so important? Like, why is it critical that you and I leave after tonight and apply these principles to our lives? Well, I want to show you why. The answer is found in verse 9. I'm not going to preach verse 9. We're going to get into this verse next week, but I at least want you to see it because it answers our question. Paul goes on, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. Some of your Bibles say into a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see, if you refuse to learn contentment, the only other choice for you is greed. And Paul's saying greed, man, that causes people to do some, some really horrible, unwise things that ultimately wreck and destroy their lives. You see, aren't you grateful that God loves us enough to put up warning signs, to say to us in his word, listen, don't, don't choose the way of greed. If you choose the way of greed, that's going to wreck and destroy your life. Choose my way. Choose my way. Obey me. Trust me. Manage my money and my stuff according to my wishes, and I will give you the inward sufficiency to keep you at peace. It's not dependent on money and stuff. I'll give you the contentment you so desperately want and need. Isn't it amazing that God has told us exactly how to get what we're looking for? You see, you have to know, God, he doesn't want something from us. He wants something for us. And I hope you believe that tonight. Choose God's way. Pursue him, not more of his stuff. Trust in him. Don't compare what he's given you to everybody else. And be grateful for what God's done to meet your needs. You will learn contentment.